Okay, good morning. We're going to begin with prayer. I'll go ahead and pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for fellowship of the saints and for your kindness and mercy, for the forgiveness of sins, for the blood atonement, for eternal hope, for answered prayer. Pray that you be with everyone who is going through battles, which is everyone. And Lord, help us uh, do things your way. Think in a biblical way and believe your promises. And we ask you to help us do that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Today, as we see the church took action, which we mentioned after Agabus's prophecy, I did a little more thinking about this. I don't see anything in the text that tells us how Agabus knew there was going to be a famine. I mean, there was no description of a mechanism. Um, he's um, seen to be a, a prophet, and he was a valid one. And he just said what was going to happen. I've argued that we don't have anybody on the scene of history like this now. In fact, on July 8th, I, I was wrong. I had Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 18 uh, turned around. Okay. Deuteronomy 13 is about going after different gods. And then 18 was about it doesn't come to pass. Now, somebody, I don't want to get it wrong twice in a row. So if somebody wants to check that, fact check me. Um, I hate being wrong, but you know, the fact is I'm pretty good at it. Yeah, I know. I really don't like being wrong, but it's a lot of work not to be, and you still are sometimes. I think 13 is about other gods. Deuteronomy. There's a mic over there. I don't know. I don't see our mic person here, so go ahead. Is it 13? You are correct, Bob. I'm sorry. I can't have my mic here. Uh, Oh, hold on. I got to turn it up. Go ahead. Oh, okay. There we go. Yep, you're correct. It's uh, chapter 13, you shall go after no other gods. So if a dreamer comes and arises among them and gives you a sign or a wonder, if the sign or wonder he tells you comes to pass, and if he says... Let us go after other gods, which you have not known, and let us serve them. You shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. So there's a theological test. Yeah, amen. And so we have pushed that, and certainly it doesn't change under the new covenant. We're not allowed to go after other gods in a new covenant. And... That's why, by the way, the doctrine of Christ is non-negotiable. Who Jesus is uh, has to be understood, taught, adhered to, proclaimed, confessed, and we can't negotiate on that. And I've got an interesting, I think, uh, very interesting report that came from Israel. The article on the New Apostolic Reformation went out and they've got it translated into four or five languages and it's going all over. I got a really nice feedback uh, email from Israel and the guy said the article's bulletproof so they, they can't they can't argue against what it says. So they're trying to deflect by saying, oh, why should we be talking about doctrine when we have people being killed? So their way of deflecting, let me, some of you may not know what that issue was. I was asked for permission to republish an article we did on a new apostolic reformation called the roots and fruits of it. And at the heart of it, there is a false doctrine of Christ. And if you take away the idea 
that somehow humans can achieve the same status that Christ had, at least during his incarnation, and get rid of the uniqueness of Christ, then we can hope to do greater miracles than Jesus ever did. So their claim is that they're going to do these miracles. But as a matter of fact, they don't. Now with the media, social media and videos and big meetings that can be televised to charge up the troops and uh, rally the people that are following these false teachers, they can uh, make all kinds of grandiose claims. One guy was claiming that five people were literally raised from the dead at a series of meetings in Florida. This was some years ago. But the guy's a false prophet and uh, one of the national TV networks went in and researched and they couldn't find any evidence that anybody was ever raised from the dead. But whatever's going on in Israel, here's what you need to know, and this is a good application to Deuteronomy 13 and what we've been taught in the New Testament. If you blaspheme Christ by claiming that he lost his divinity wherever that may have seen to happen on the cross, in hell, as they say, or that somehow the incarnation means giving up his divine status. There's different ways that the heretics do that. Okay? You're still a blasphemer. Okay? I don't care how pious you are. I don't care how many books you sold. I don't care how many people came to your meeting. I don't care how much money you collected from gullible saints or people who think they're Christian. I don't care about any of that because blasphemy is blasphemy. If Jesus Christ claimed to be the eternal Logos who created the world out of nothing, who exists with the Father forever and ever, There are certain things that are true about Jesus. They're not going to cease to be true because these attributes, these unique, incommunicable attributes of God are not dependent on anything outside of God. Okay? Deity, as defined biblically, is non-contingent. Non-contingent. What do I mean by that? It doesn't depend on anything else outside of itself to exist. You don't become God. You either are or you aren't. You don't gain deity because if you don't have it and you do gain it, you're not really God in the sense of John 1.1 because there was a contingency involved. If there's something that eternal exists, then that whatever is eternal didn't become that way because of something outside of itself, because there's nothing but God in eternity past. Yes. Uh, the people ask, when, when you state what you just did, people will say, well, then who created God? Okay, but see, that, that, that's a, 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 a dumb question. It goes against what well, Eric you just Ser- said. Remember Eric's sermon? Some people are stuck on stupid. Yeah. Well, the claim of the Bible, in John 1, 1 and elsewhere, is that God is. Okay? Eternal, non-contingent existence. Now... <laughs> I don't know if people see why that is so significant, and I feel motivated to talk about it. Somebody asked me a really good question after my sermon Sunday that just shows the saliency of this. Because this new apostolic reformation is gaining followers all around the world. It's in Africa, it's in Israel. It's really a hotbed of it out in California and elsewhere in America. And one of their key doctrines is that somehow whatever status Jesus had during his incarnation, we can achieve ourselves. All right? But if that's the case, 
We've just lost the uniqueness of Christ, which is clearly taught in the Bible. And so we wrote an article about that. It's translated in these languages. And I got a great report about they can't argue against the argument. It's bulletproof. So they just say, well, we sacrificed or we did that or one of our people was martyred because of some conflict, which, okay, but deity is. Now, let me, let me give you some terminology. It doesn't hurt for the church to learn doctrine. All right. We need to distinguish between linguistics and ontology. Now, I'm going to bring Eric in on this, so get, get that mic all hot and ready. You don't have to turn it on just yet. We did some radio on this. There's a difference between linguistics and ontology or terminology and ontology. Let me tell you why I'm saying that. In John 10, I think 40, where is it? 34 to 36? Somebody might want to look it up. In John 10, I think about 34, somebody find where they're debating about Psalm 82. Ye are gods. 34. Yeah, do you want to read that little section there and I'll tell you why I'm saying what I am. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you stoning me? The Jews answered him, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself out to be God. Jesus answered them, Has it not been written in your law, I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and the scripture cannot be broken, do, not, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the Son of God. There you go. By the way, I like to commend great commentaries. I commend J. Ramsey Michaels, common, new commentary on John is fantastic. I just read that. Someone asked me about it Sunday after church. Because I brought up this thing of the new apostolic reformation and the word of faith movement talk, teaching that little God's doctrine. And it's all made too. So let me address that based on that passage. What they were talking about words. Okay. Now, Psalm 82 is an interesting passage in its own right. I believe it's about the divine counsel. There were multiple Elohim in the divine council that came before God and included evil beings. Now we see that in Job 1 and verse 6. We see that, which one is it? 1 Kings 17, where one of, one of these divine council becomes a lying spirit in the mouth of the prophets. Remember, remember that one? And there's other such things. Okay, so... You read into Psalm, you read Psalm 82 and you get down to verse 6 and it said, you are God's, nevertheless you'll die like men. It's not a commendation. Okay. This, I hope this helps us. Ye are God's, nevertheless you'll die like men. True deity is non-contingent. True deity like that of Christ exists from all eternity. He is. He said many times in the Gospel of John, I am. I am. Unless you believe that I am, Jesus said, you'll die in your sins. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God. And then in the Greek, the implication is the, the Word was face to face with God. So the deity of Christ is clear in the Gospel of John. But we're not talking about, in John 10, ontology. We're talking about uh, terminology. Is that the best way to say it? Okay. 
when somebody said to lesser beings, if lesser beings are called Elohim, which they are, both spiritual ones and possibly men, I'm not sure, somebody maybe knows more about Psalm 82.6. I did some research on it. These are not the creators of the universe. The divine council had fallen beings. They didn't create the universe. The triumph God of the Bible did. So Jesus is saying, there's really an irony here. The very creator himself came into this world as the son of God and also God the son. And they called him a blasphemer for making that claim. And he turns around and says, if in a lesser case, people that aren't having the status that Jesus does or said, you're God's, but nevertheless, you'll die like men. How am I a blasphemer for making a true claim, being the son of God? So he was silencing them in their own thing. But he distinguishes between terminology and ontology. I think I mentioned what ontology is. It's the study of being. And uh, it's, it's so the confusion gives a window of opportunity for the heretics to come flooding in. And they're saying we should somehow strive to attain the status of godhood and then prove that we have it by doing greater miracles than Jesus did. And so not only do they want to deny the uniqueness of his apostles or the apostles and prophets of the New Testament like Agabus, they want to deny the the that the uniqueness of Jesus Christ himself. And thus they blaspheme our Lord. And their proof that we should listen to him is their own piety. We pray 24 hours a day. We have huge groups. We, have, we do good deeds. We, we, we do all these miracles, which are questionable whether they actually happen. And it goes on and on and on and on. And so that's a false movement based on false premise. But most people aren't going to be able to distinguish between ontology and terminology, and they don't get it. So I'm saying all of this to hopefully help somebody not fall into this. Now, go ahead, Eric. I wanted you to comment on that. It's interesting when we get back to that John 10, the reason why the heretics, as Bob is pointing out, want to use the sons of, well, when Jesus says you are gods, what the heretic Wants is that to be interpreted that Jesus is saying that to men, that men are like gods or are gods. And specifically, they'll interpret it as a reference to the judges in Israel. The problem with that is, if, see, if they're right, then they would argue, well, see, we are like little gods. Therefore, we can do things just as Jesus did. And it's an attack on the uniqueness of Christ. But the term God, as Bob is pointing out, is used in a functional sense as it was used. Um, everyone heard, has heard of the term the Lord of hosts. Well, he's the Lord of what? Well, the divine council. And so these little gods, the Elohim, the Im ending, by the way, is plural. So when you and I see in our Hebrew Bible, God, it's Elohim, but we know that it's referring to the true God, it's one. But the divine council, which the Lord sits over, are angels, and they're given functional language called gods simply because they rule the universe. Now, Jesus is the Lord of them. And proof that Bob is right in his interpretation, look at Psalm 82. Psalm 82 doesn't make any sense if there's gods that Jesus is Yeah, because why would they die like men? Exactly. Why would there be a, a likeness? Because um, they are men. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. Let's turn to Psalm 82, 6 through 7. So here's the reference that Jesus is quoting from. This is the Lord speaking. He says, I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Well, it doesn't make any sense if these are men. 
Well, to die like a man isn't a big surprise. They are men. Yeah. So obviously this is a reference to angels. So here's the question. Well, how can they die? Well, remember what death is. It's separation from God. Exactly. One day all men will be separated from God in the lake of fire. Where do... Where does Satan and his angels go, those who followed him? Well, they go into the lake of fire. So that's what's being referenced here. So Bob is exactly right. Functional language, where they function like gods in the governance of God's universe, is now being twisted to ontological usage, saying, well, they actually are God. Well, no, they're not God. They're functioning like gods. And that's the difference that Bob's well, pointing out. Well, remember when Job... Finally, when God comes on the scene and toward the end of Job, yeah, what did what did, he, God asked a bunch of questions that couldn't be answered? Where were you? We got the guy with the worst ankle carrying the mic around. Uh, so you know that uh, that quote goes almost directly with in Psalm eighty-two or yeah six. It says you know they are gods. And then it says sons of God. And, and that, you know, I think is meant, you know, in the New Testament, when it calls us sons of God, or it says in Jesus, our elder brother, or with his promises, we partake of the divine nature. We, we in Christ are now, you know, God is, is, is who we are. So in a sense, we're, you know, partaking. And I really believe this is what it's saying, you know, like, this is a okay, real so sense. then why don't we create the world out of nothing? <laughs> but then it makes a distinction. It makes the distinction between okay. Christ saying... You know, he set all his enemies under his feet, and he does, you know, it's, it's the distinction is, is not lost, but it's like his spirit is really in us, and we really are, you know, now children of God. Now it's like that's who we are. It's, it's him in us. And, yeah, it's, it, the distinction's there. It's confusion, but, yeah. Bob. Go ahead. Um, Eric, Eric, I would distinguish between being with him, which is that language, and being him. So to be a son of the Most High means you're with him. You have all the benefits, the privileges, because he earned it for you. But it doesn't ever mean that we can be him. So, in fact, we're going to be doing baptism today. Baptism is about being with Christ. So I'm a son or a daughter. I'm so identified with him. I'm dead to the old world positionally. I'm alive positionally. But it's not because I'm Christ or I'm God. It's because I'm with him. Okay, so there's a distinction then between being with him and being him. And that's what Bob is pointing out. Right. And some, the sons of, by the way, you have to look at the range of meaning. Sometimes it means characterized by. I'm getting ready to preach Ephesians, starting in Ephesians 2, 1, about being, first it starts out, and you were dead by the way the word were there. You being dead is ontos, where we get our word ontology. We're, we're in a state of dead. But, and then it holds that in abeyance until later it says, but God made you alive. So you got to sit there and contemplate being dead for a while before you get the answer. I, I, lo- I love how Paul wrote Ephesians. It's so exciting. All right. That was my statement about that. Now, here, knowing there's going to be a famine, they took action. Now, this was their decision to do. And so what we want to do as we get into this topic of God's providence is distinguish between God's providential will and his revealed moral will. And we've got to think about Deuteronomy 29, 29. And we've got to think about our freedom to take action or not take action depending on what's in front of us. And we need to think about what's forbidden and what's allowed. When these categories became clear in my mind about 15 years ago, it was utterly liberating because I had spent so long laboring under false ideas about what providence actually meant. I was thinking of a, a case where it was in the 80s when I was finally starting to dawn on me. I had my categories wrong. I, I was driving old uh, Buick LeSabers from the late 70s for, until they finally started uh, making cars that were worth driving about 20 years later. There were no horsepower or anything in the 70s, but at least the LeSaber was smooth and my wife liked it. 
So I kept rebuilding them and fixing them. So I decided to rebuild the engine in one of them. And I worked and I worked and I worked and we pulled out the engine and we did this and we did that. Got it all. Finally, it just took forever. It was really nasty. And when it all got done and finally I was driving it, the process was so painful, I said to somebody, I wasn't hearing from God. That was my reason. This is about the time where I was starting, finally starting to get my categories right. That was a stupid statement. I was stuck on stupid. <laughs> but thank God you can get unstuck. Yes. Because the reality is this, my dear friends. God gives us true liberty in Christ knowing that any valid decision may end up being less wise than we wish it was, but it's not a sin. And in, during the process of rebuilding the car, I was still a Christian and Bert Sisler, God bless him, he helped me a whole lot. And we, together we got the thing done and I was driving a car, but it was time to think of some other way of doing this. But see, dear ones, once we get the categories right of what's forbidden and what's allowed, and then we start thinking about providence, we will realize that we were thinking wrongly. We were thinking, at least I was, and I think most people tend to, we assign providence to everything works out nicely now. Okay, we bought a house and it turned out to be a great house to buy and it went up in value. We bought a car and it wasn't a lemon. We, uh, we made it, we, we got a job and we loved the job and it made us a lot of money. We just think providence means it all works out the way we want it to. But that's not the biblical doctrine. So I, wrote, I found two articles. One of them, the first one I wrote was 15 years ago. 2003, issue 75, God's Will and Christian Liberty, CIC, 2003. How could that be 15 years ago? It was like yesterday. But I reread this and marked up my copy. And it's very, it's a lot simpler than the more technical later one, issue 113, which is still a good one. But it tells us what the categories are and it comforts us that we can use wisdom and uh, do the, use the wisdom we have. And there's no recrimination. We tend to, even husbands and wives, they tend to recriminate one another based on whether a decision worked out favorably or not. Do you, do you know what I'm talking about or is that just me? <laughs> What kind of a dumb thing did you do? Or why did you do that? My wife's going to do Well, it really wasn't my point, but. So let's go to our next slide here. And then, so we got issue 75, issue 113. I want to talk about that. So they were exercising their li- liberty to take action to supply relief for a famine that hadn't happened yet. How it was that they trusted Agabus, we, we're not told, but they did. So it says in 1 Corinthians 8, 5, for even if there are so-called gods, there's what we were just talking about, terminology, linguistics, so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth. Now, there are Elohim in the heavenly council that are fallen, as we were saying. Indeed, there are many gods and many lords. So they lived in a world of paganism, certainly in Antioch, also over in Athens and Corinth and so on, over the over a ways east, excuse me, west. And... 
as I showed in some of the quotes we've done in Ephesians, some of the texts that have been unearthed and recovered, especially from Asia Minor, shows how they believed in fate and luck. And it's interesting, this is how humans in their fallen condition tend to be inconsistent. One of the quotes that I made was from a a group, somebody who wrote and said, just give in to to it. It's all going to happen. Give in to fate. Don't fight against it. You know, it's going to happen. Fatalism. But it never has stopped people from being superstitious, having religions, doing things to try to stave off bad fate try to appease the gods that they think are causing it. But uh, that's just the way it works. But notice these so-called gods are not those that have the status of the triune God of the Bible. And terminology-wise, there are gods and lords. But for us, there's only one. Why? I think that's the next one. But one. Verse 6. Because we aren't pagans. The God who exists, who created everything out of nothing, is not silent, as Dr. Schaefer said. He is there and he's not silent. God has spoken. Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. If God had not spoken, we would all be pagans and we'd be wondering what's going on and why. We'd probably be out there with a smoke pot you know, trying to scare away the demons or being superstitious or hoping for luck. Remember that one citation I used? Uh, what was that? Agathe 2K was uh, good luck. It was a goddess. May the, good, the goddess of good luck shine on me so you go buy a lottery ticket. That's a plan. <laughs> but, uh, the pagans are known for magic, fatalism, and polytheism. The gospel confronts this with the truth of God's sovereign rule over his universe. Now, when we teach this, which I think we cannot be denied that it's biblical. There's verse after verse after verse telling us this is biblical. But a huge section of Christendom, if you want to call it that, hates this and will deny it with every possible way they have to deny it. Why? Because if they they think if God's in charge of his own universe, then God's responsible for evil and I don't like that. It makes me feel bad. And how many of you know in this day and age, feeling bad means something has to change because somebody did something and they have to change. I feel bad. Where's my crying closet? Where's the ACLU when you need them? I feel bad. So I've debated people say, well, God cannot be in charge of his own universe because then he's an evil God because he could have done something about all this, but he didn't. And I say, well, yes, he did. He sent his own son. But yeah, but his own son came just to make it possible if we exercise our free will, then things will get better. So free will runs the universe, not God. Now, when I point out, well, I don't see, if you look up free will in the concordance, the only time I find it, at least in the New American Standard Bible, was where they took up a free will offering. It's never used to, it's never ever used to explain God's relationship to a fallen universe. Now they say, yeah, but it's implied because people do make decisions. Right. God allows people that hate him to live on his earth, enjoy his bounty, breathe the air, enjoy the sunshine, enjoy the rain. God sends the rains in its seasons. And this is called common grace in theology, and I think it's a valid category. 
And you can do that. You can, you can blaspheme God every day and say there is no God or whatever and still enjoy the world that God created. The judgment comes later. And so I'd say that. Well, yeah, we know that. Okay, so what you were mad about is that if we say we are saved, it was God's doing. Well, God made it possible, but we made the decision. That's kind of where they land. So the, the, the universe is sort of out of God's control, but we have our part. If we do our part, then it works out good. At least we, we're saved. But it's just really bad, bad theology because it's not what the Bible's telling us. So I would say to those who want somehow the world to be more chaotic because it makes them feel less angry about God, that if God had not spoken and told us about himself, about the world we live in, about sin, about redemption, about Christ, about the gospel, that if we turn to Christ and believe on him and repent, we'll be saved. Had we not known it, had God not spoken, we wouldn't know any of these things. So why don't we go to what we can know because God spoke? But we don't like Romans 8.28. We don't like it. Let me give you a clue. Never allow your feelings and emotions to determine your theology. Feelings and emotions are part of life. God gives them to us so that we can enjoy the world he put us in. I'm not denying their reality. We do enjoy the sunset and the sunrise and the trying to do things that, that we enjoy. But theology has to be determined by what God said, not how we feel. Yes, Dan. Oh, you're, we got somebody with better legs. Well, actually, um, I was going to comment a little bit about Catholicism and how the papacy kind of takes, in my mind, takes the the approach of, of uh, you know, God needs the Pope here on Earth to to bring about the will of you know of of history right. and all that kind of thing, and that's that's a uh, a very terrifying thing to me. It's it's this papacy, uh, this power hungry, um, having control of the the religious system. Um, I, I think you know there's there's that too where they they use all the Christian terminology and they're they're you know they're essentially controlling pagan. yeah they're controlling through the Christian you know Christian right. uh, Christianese language right. but they're not it's they're not, not Christian, Christian. everything's redefined right, right see we have to know who speaks for God and I say it's Christ and His apostles and the biblical writers Moses and the prophets Christ and His apostles and their associates. Rome says the creeds and councils of the Catholic Church plus the Pope speak for God, and they give us the true interpretation of the Bible, but they contradict themselves constantly. And you even look at what they said in Trent and how in the latest Catholic catechism they refute what Trent said, but but just put it all out there as if there's no contradiction when it's obvious to anybody there is. But people mindlessly go along with it because they don't dare challenge the Pope. But that's why I thank God for Martin Luther. He was willing to stand up to the Pope, and God bless him. Yes. Uh, just another thing I was thinking about, because uh, I don't think my question or my uh, comment quite came across right, maybe. But I was thinking, you know, Richard Wormbrand, he had a good comment that, that uh, I think leads into the scripture uh, understanding of like who we are in Christ and I think and one of them was he prayed one night in the prison when he was in uh, solitary confinement he, he hadn't heard a word from anyone for said and yes God you know would you I can't remember if he asked him to talk to someone or anyways God answered him he said what's your name and um, Richard Wormbrandt you know he, he was thinking for some reason you know how God works he he puts us in situations that he knows where we're going to go with that he knows our mind and Richard was ashamed to say his name because he he knew how he had you know been acting and it's like but he because he knew another Richard that had died singing a, a hymn you know or a song and he just died with a smile as a martyr for Christ and, he, and so he's ashamed to say his name and he after a while he, he said you know well could I have your name you know could would I have can I have under your name and that's essentially as believers that's what we are we're 
reborn our new identity. We, we are our old, our, we're dead to ourselves. We are now alive in Christ. You know, we can't do anything like Jesus says except through me. Like if, if you abide in me, you can do, produce much fruit, but apart from me, you can do nothing. So there's this new identity, this we are now everything, you know, I, and I've been praying about it because I don't fully understand it, but it's like God's alive in us. It's, that's the sense. Okay, so we have life from the dead. I agree with that. I don't know that I would endorse Wormbrand, though, because I think there's too much mysticism going on there. Let's go to verse 6, and then let's, let's talk more about this providence. Uh, I know there's a range of meaning, but if we're going to define this biblically, We've got a great English word providence that needs to be fulfilled and uh, filled out as far as its connotations and implications. I think it accurately defines what the Bible says about God. The way we use it wrongly is by using it when things work out favorably. That was providential. But when something goes bad... That wasn't. Do you, have you seen that? I mean, I tend to do it myself. But providence, you got to know this. It contains good and evil. How do we know that? What Peter preached in Acts 2. This man was crucified by the predetermined and plan and foreknowledge of God but it was done by the hands of evil men so God ordains even what involves moral evil crucifixion of Christ but he uses it for a greater good he raises him from the dead and some of those who hated him end up being Christians Saul of Tarsus wanted Stephen dead for preaching the gospel. But later, um, Jesus appears to Saul of Tarsus and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus owns the church. He loves us. He cares for us. And when we hate Christians, we hate Christ. That's what we learn from that. But God allows evil, God uses evil, and God causes it for a greater good in regard to his eternal plans and purposes. Does that mean that everything works out favorably for everybody, including the devil? No. There's a real hell, a real lake of fire, and, and so on. So 1 Corinthians 8, 6 says, Yet for us there's but one God, the Father, from whom are all things in one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through him so one of the things that we need to decide grammatically if we're going to be good Bible students is that in any given context are these all things statements literal or not I remember I probably mentioned this before. I was driving along listening to KKMS back in the early 2000s. I heard Greg Boyd on on the radio railing against Romans 8.28 as if it were an evil verse. Now, he doesn't just say Romans 8.28 is evil. What he says is, all these stupid Christians always retreat. (coughs) In other words... If we don't have two PhDs and haven't written 14 books, we're not smart enough to figure out a worldview without using Romans 8.28 as our crutch. And so what's the answer to delivering ourselves from believing that Romans 8.28 means what it says when it uses the term all things, tapanta? Well, we need to open theism. In other words, he's smart enough to create his own theology from human philosophy. And he can imagine that God isn't in control of his own universe. 
that the future is open, that God doesn't know the future. See, what Boyd knows is that if foreknowledge is true and it includes all things, then the future is just as certain as it would be if God decreed all things. There's no difference in what happens because God is omniscient and what God knows, God cannot know in air. I'll let that sink in for a second. If God knows the end from the beginning and he knows everything that will happen, including the choices of free moral agents, free I use in quotes because these moral agents are fallen sinners, then it will and it certainly must happen. Open theism is saying God only foreknows some things because some things are having the status of unknowable even by God. And generally what's unknowable is the free choices of future free choices of free moral agents. Uh, I, I wrote about this, but um, the question we have to ask is, did God tell us that it's that way? Is what he's saying a valid outtake from what we do know about the Bible? And may I say this, do we have good reason to skim over Romans 8.28 and not take it seriously? Is there any reason we shouldn't believe it? Well, in one of the articles I wrote about this, I just cited the rest of Romans 8. Let's go there. Go ahead and turn with me to Romans 8. Let's see about this one God who's sovereign over his own universe. Romans 8, 28. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. For whom he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the images of his son, so he would be the firstborn among many brothers. There is that idea there that will be like Christ and conform to his image. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, by the way, that's the effectual call, not the universal call. He justified and those he justified, he glorified. These are given in tenses that would indicate the certainty of this coming to pass. Now let's read on. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? Implied answer, nobody can ultimately harm us. He did not even, verse 32, spare his own son, but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Now there's the ultimate Supreme Court. Right? Once he decides, it's done. What does Satan do? He accuses the accuser of the brethren, since Zacharias in Revelation. How is his accusation silenced? By the blood of the Lamb. Who is the one who condemns? Implied answer, no one. Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He sits at the right hand of God. That means place of all power and authority, Psalm 110.1. Intercedes for us. What do you think about that? Jesus is praying for you. What does that tell us about Jesus? He's loving. He's merciful. He's omniscient. Why do I say that? Well, how many people can we think about at one time? A finite mortal person might have a whole bunch of people on his or her prayer list, but it's a pretty short list compared to everybody. That's why I tell Catholics, what do you think Mary's going to do for you? 
Are you claiming she's a goddess? She's infinite? Well, no. Well, then how can she pray for a billion people at the same time? She'd have to be omniscient. So you're saying that you believe in more than the triune God of the Bible. You believe in another goddess who has to have the qualities of godhood and omniscience to be able to do what you claim that she does. This is absurd. People say, oh, you're just anti-Catholic. No, I'm anti-pagan bondage. I'm anti-pagan bondage. And if you're going to be a pagan, you don't need a church to help you be pagan. The church is here to get us away from being pagan to becoming Christian. All right. So he intercedes for us. Let's go on. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Implied answer, nobody. Can affliction or anguish or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than victorious through him who loved us. For I'm persuaded. Now look at the list. Neither that even, not even death or life, angels or rulers, things present, things to come, hostile powers. Wow. Height, depth, or any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I was bringing this argument to a guy who was railing against the grace of God and salvation, though he didn't say that's what he was doing. We have to be in charge of it. God can't be, otherwise it's not fair. Free will, free will, free will. So I said, okay, let's read it again. Nor or any other created thing. Is the human volition a created thing or not? Or does human willpower coexist with God from all eternity? Well, no, created. Well, there's your answer. You're you're reading something into the text which the text itself denies. And so people live in fear. Tomorrow I might decide something different, then I'm going to go to hell. I might decide to commit apostasy. I might decide to not serve God. I might decide I don't like having Jesus as Lord over my life. Or maybe I did something like that in the past and I can't believe that Jesus will forgive me or cleanse me. Here's what it says. So assurance is a valid thing. That's why I think Hebrews is so great. Uh, but there it is. Uh, Luann, if somebody could bring the mic. Well, I, I was thinking that, um, and you kind of summed it up here, but uh, prior when you were talking about providence and you gave the example when good things happen and people want to think it's providence, but providence is supposed to be the comfort for the believers that even when things are bad, because the Bible talks about things are going to be evil and it's only with tribulation that you enter the kingdom of God. That's where providence gives us this encouragement and the comfort. Right. That's exactly good. That's a good application of what we just read in Romans 8. And then I was going to say, because I've been thinking about this all week, but, you know, when we live in this pagan society that we do today, and we hear a lot about karma all over the place, we hear about Islam and how Allah is just in charge of, no matter what happens, it's Allah's will, it's Allah's will, so we don't help anybody. And so we don't want to look and sound like these, the pagans around us. We want to look and sound like Christians. And, and I guess I'm going all over the board, but, you know, because everything can be abused. And I think about, I sent you that email, um, you know, about Providence and how the uh, Calvinists, a lot of them, when they um, initially left the English area, you know, the, everywhere they went, they thought they were bringing the new Israel to whatever land they went to. So when they went to America, they thought this is the new Israel. They went to South Africa, this is the new Israel. They were in England, this is Israel. And it's because they had such a strong understanding of providence, but they had it misunderstood. Well, they had bad doctrine. And remember, that's a good illustration. 
the way on. Let me comment on that. It's a very good thing to know because a lot of the people that are virulent enemies of the doctrines of grace are in that state because of emotional reaction to Calvinism. And they assume that you can't believe in the sovereignty of God unless you swear to believe everything Calvin taught in his institutes. But the fact is, Israel is Israel. Okay, America is not Israel. Israel is as in a theocratic state won't be that way till the millennium. Okay, so that's a good point. So providence includes everything. Let me give you an example, because I grew up where most everybody was Dutch Reformed other than us liberal Methodists. It's, there, weren't, there weren't a ton of good evangelical options, although there were some. Let's say you're born into a Dutch Reformed Calvinist home. And you're baptized as a baby. I think I'm going to do a preview for Eric here. And they said, now, now you at least are in the halfway covenant. Okay, You have a covenant with God of some sort. Uh, you're part of the new Israel if you stay in this church. And if you don't marry somebody who's not reformed. And if you make sure your babies are baptized and you teach them they have to obey the law of our church and whatever that might be, that'll make you Christian. And so all of that was going on or this idea that we get over, the Puritans come over here, this is Israel. Providence contains good and evil. So yes, it was providence that you were born into a Dutch reformed home if that's what you were. But it's it's your duty to determine what is the moral law of God revealed in the Bible and to believe the truth. And if you determine that the law of God, and again, and I'm just talking about the difference between law and gospel, but the revealed will of God, let's say it that way, is this, to repent and believe the gospel and to believe the whole counsel of God in the Bible And if God says something about Israel, then we can know that from the Bible, not from the dogma of the church. And you are free to leave. You don't have to sit in that church anymore, and you have to sit in Rome. Okay? And there was a lady that we knew in Iowa who came to Christ, and she was in a Reformed church. One of the least abusive ones. Uh, I'm sorry, I don't want to put you off, but I'll, I'll finish the story as quickly as I can. And she said, I want to be baptized. I don't believe that being baptized as a baby was God's will. I want to be baptized. So she came over and was baptized in our evangelical church because she, and she was praising God. And, uh, so you, providence contains good and evil. What is good and what is evil has to be determined by our knowledge of the Bible. Go ahead, brother. I think my question was just answered by my sister here. Uh, but at any rate, I see a bookends happening here, 828, all things work for good together. And then uh, verse 35, a description of all things, which is neither height nor depth. Nor yeah, depth. exactly. Kind of, uh, and then, uh, but as I say, she just answered it. For the, uh, Back to 828, uh, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God on God's terms right. and who are defined by God, the elect. Right. So all of the Hinduism, false teachers, they all work for good as long as we are in God, identified by God, right. and we see the difference. Providence co- covers all of that, but it doesn't have a good outcome. You might be wealthy, happy, healthy, and everything else, and then die and go to hell. Would that be a good outcome? No. Well, we're just getting started. If you haven't done it, you can download the PDF, issue 75, issue 113, and go ahead and ask your own practical, personal questions next week. How does this work? How does that change how I think? How should I live and choose a job or a husband or a wife or raise my kids? How do I do all of this based on what you're teaching? Or is this just 
high-level stuff for people who don't have anything better to do than study theology. By the way, I say that ironically. I think it is a good thing to do. That's what I do. Let's pray. <laughs> there, okay, issue 75, there's some copies of it upstairs if you want it. I think you'll like it. It's very, uh, I think it, it helped me. I, 15 years ago, I don't know what I wrote back then. I have to read it. Okay, thank you, dear Lord, for taking care of us and for revealing yourself to us. Thank you for causing us to be comforted by the truth that you not only are in charge of this universe, but you care personally for each one of us and are bringing us along to be conformed to the image of your son, Jesus Christ. And we pray that in Jesus' precious name, amen. God bless you.